Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. I've, I've, there's been two storms here over the weekend. And Ooh, so I've me. taken this opportunity. You know, you always have to do things to improve yourself at the beginning of the year. So I'm trying to get a jump start on it. Okay. And so I'm, I'm persevering with my Irish lessons. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, it's very difficult, I think, isn't it? Quite difficult. But if anybody wants me to give them an apple and a cup of tea, a coupon tea. Please, could I have an apple, Alex? Uh, Yeah. Well, I don't know how to say here it is yet. Oh. We haven't got on to that. How do you say apple? Ul. Okay. Lovely. No doubt people will be writing in. and I And I welcome that. Please write in and tell me how how I'm doing when I ask for a coupon tea, Lebonia. It's a cup of tea with milk, agasucra and sugar. Uh, so this is what I'm doing. But this is as nothing. We were chatting before and a little bit later on the podcast, we're going to be hearing about Paris and indeed Picasso and Lucy, as if off air, told me a story. And I said, well, I mean. Don't tell me now. Tell the listeners. So, Lucy, <laughs> can I have your Paris and Picasso story, please? Yes, it's just that. So when I was staying in Paris and it was there were train strikes and it was also the winter, so it was snowing. So it was very, very picturesque and a bit chaotic because everybody was walking around. Some people, and I envied them, the ones on the big boulevards were uh, rollerblading to work. There was people wearing these brilliant brilliant sort of city suits and rollerblades to work but I, I would not that. rollerblade in perfect conditions never mind ice and snow it did look thrilling shall we say I'm sorry or schnackter as I should say in Gaelic. oh very good That's very snow. very yeah. good yeah very carry good. on I used to live at the sort of on the other side of the hill in Montmartre over the hill from Sacré-Cœur down the back sort of thing you know not in the touristy bit I'm already seeing Juliette Binoche 
It's already <laughs> wonderful. Nowhere near. Nothing picturesque. like. Not even one percent as cool and chic. But so I'm I'm sort of trudging over the hill and in down the hill because the 18th is basically a, a big hill. So I'm going down the hill from from quite high up, and there's a little place which I can't exactly remember the name of, and on one side of it is the Bateau Lavoir which is a building where all the artists or many of the major artists of the 20th century worked at one point, including Picasso. They would have little studios or flats there. And I think it used to be a wash house. That's why it's called the Bateau Lavoir. And it was very cheap. And it became known as a sort of an artistic, you know, a place where you could get a flat cheaply and a, and a studio. So Picasso did, did work there at one point as well. And so I was walking over the hill and thinking, you know, how beautiful everything looked in the snow. And as I was, began to walk across this, little square I saw Picasso in like you know when he's a bit older there's this very famous picture of him in his striped Breton and he's got very very close cropped hair almost bald yes he's very very recognizably Picasso at that point yeah that intense stare and quite sort of heavy set like quite Mm. quite big Mm. and I just thought Okay, something's happening here. I'm having a hallucination. I mean, it it is very wonderful and picturesque to be in Paris, but I really shouldn't be seeing Picasso walking across. I'm in a time slip novel, you're thinking to yourself. I shouldn't be seeing him walking across to his gaff at the Bateau Lavoir. What is going on? Mm. And I just kind of stood there for a minute, just and I could because I couldn't work out what was happening. And after a while, I, I took another couple of steps and realized that I was on a gigantic film set because they were making a film of Picasso. And it was Anthony Hopkins. And I know that because in true Hollywood style, he had a chair that said Anthony Hopkins. That was very thrilling. Oh, they really do that, do they? Well, they, they did they that did. morning. And that's the whole thing was a hallucination. And so he was basically walking across the place as Picasso going, you know, going off to paint or whatever. And I, presumably I had ruined the shot, so I had to kind of dance off, dance off the shot pretty quickly and go around the back and realise what was going on. The poor scriptwriter desperately writing snow into the script. Yeah. And indeed, a young editor picking her way down one From the future. <laughs> From the future. It's just one of those moments I can really... I really can picture it because it was so odd and so suspended for a minute and I just didn't know what was going on, but but it was magic. Well, that brings us brilliantly into this week's podcast because we have Lauren Elkin on a world-changing meeting between Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein and Maria Margaronis introduces us to a complex portrait of Willa Cather. But first... Sometimes it's difficult to think about very great artists or movements and how they began because you have to scrape away a layer of well-known, much rehearsed and rehashed facts, stories and myth-making in order to look at them again. How about, for instance, when Pablo Picasso met Gertrude Stein in Paris? In Paris at the moment, at the Musée du Luxembourg, is an exhibition on that very moment and it's called L'Invention du Langage. And happily for all of us, Lauren Elkin saw it, wrote about it, and is here to talk it through with us. Lauren, many thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for asking me to be here. So it was brilliant that you went to Paris to see it. I thought you still lived in Paris and was going to ask you about the magical lit up streets of festive Paris. But it turns out that you were just around the corner from me in London in grey, <laughs> rainy. <laughs> alas, alas. It was lovely to be there. For I was there for a few days, I guess, in November. Um, okay. But yeah, sadly, based in London now. 
Lucy, yeah, why okay. do I never get sent to Paris to do things? It's a good question. Not not many of us do. <laughs> Lauren's a specialist. I mean, that's if you write a book called Flaneurs, you're going yeah. to get sent to Paris, aren't you? Yeah, very, very good plan. Exactly. <laughs> so at this exhibition, it's, it's difficult, as I say, to sort of think about these things that fresh for most of us. But we have to remember, which is what you point out in the beginning of your piece, that when Pablo Picasso met Gertrude Stein in 1905, they were both marginalised and unknown, weren't they? They were, yeah. They were both sort of recently arrived in Paris and neither of them w were the like powerhouse artist or, or writer that we know them as now. They were both kind of on the sidelines in French society, both foreigners. Stein, of course, not only American, but Jewish and a lesbian, although she wasn't out at this point and she hadn't met Alice B. Toglas quite yet. But yeah, it's a really interesting moment where they're both kind of in this like moment of becoming who they're going to be and they they get along right away or at least that's how Stein spins it later when she writes the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Mm -hmm. And so Picasso you say very quickly he said he wanted to paint Stein so she sat for him in her flat. Crucial that it was in her flat wasn't it because it was filled with a wonderful art collection that she and her brother had built up. I think she went to sit for him in his flat in Monarch. Oh I got that yeah. wrong then. No no it's okay. <laughs> She would walk across Paris uh, from, you know, Montparnasse, where she was living, up to Montmartre. Um, oh, and she okay. said that that was really useful time for her, that she would kind of, you know, the time when she was sitting, she would be kind of writing in her head. But that those kind of long walks were very meditative for, and productive for her. OK, so I got it completely wrong, but it, <laughs> it provided uh, an interesting thing. Because also Montparnasse to Montmartre is a long walk. It is. It is, definitely. That would take you a while. Yeah. So... Let's see if my point still holds in any way. <laughs> I was wondering how important the work that Picasso saw in her flat was for him. Well, that's what's so interesting about the show. The curators have done a really great job of looking at the ways in which both Stein and Picasso were experiencing each other's kind of like art culture and and learning from it and using it to build their own kind of artistic vision. So Picasso came over to their house, I think it was 1905, because Gertrude Stein's brother Leo had bought a couple of his paintings. One was a gouache called The Acrobat Family and the other a painting called Nude Girl with a Flower Basket that Stein, Gertrude, actually hated when she first saw it. She said there was something rather appalling in the drawing of the legs and feet and she was really kind of shocked by it. But in time, she came to sort of see what the fuss was about. And I think meeting him at, at her house, he came to see their collection. Um, really, yeah, there's something just just like the energy just flowed between them. And that's actually where Picasso first saw this really famous 1878 portrait that Cezanne did of his wife in which she has this one eye that's completely black. And I think that was a really foundational moment for Picasso. I've actually got that written down here as a question, Lauren. It says, mm -hmm. tell us about Suzanne's wife's right eye. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. This eye is is just completely black. It's really kind of shocking when you look at it. I mean, I, I don't, I think, you know, like I'm sure many listeners, I tend to just look at Cezanne's and think, oh, that's a Cezanne. And I don't kind of dwell on what's shocking or new or really striking about them. But the show, this the show at the Musée du Luxembourg, made me 
take another look at this painting. I didn't actually see it in the show, I have to say. It's really, one thing that's really strange about the show, as great as it is, is that it's really unclear which paintings that are in it belonged to Stein, which ones are part of her collection and which ones are not. Um, so I did have to go looking that painting up online. But when you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, that is that is really strange. And he painted his wife all the time, didn't he, Suzanne? He painted lots of portraits of her. He did. And this one, and they're they're all very striking, but this one is, I guess, the most striking. Well, it's the one that Picasso found really mm. striking. Mm. And so you see that start to appear in his own work. There is a self-portrait um that he did that that does appear in the show. Um, from 1906, in which he's blacked out his own right eye. So you see that specific connection between um, Stein's collection and Picasso's aesthetics. So it was through the brother that they met, through Gertrude Stein's brother, that the initial contact happened because he was basically a customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gertrude wanted nothing to do with this Picasso person. She was completely (laughs) disinterested. So when she writes what you said of her saying, oh, we understood each other straight away, this is a bit of hindsight and spin, is it? I think so. I mean, it does seem clear that fairly early on she agreed to sit for him. They hardly knew each other at this point. So it may be that she was flattered by that interest in her. I mean, how could she not have been? You know, right away, Picasso asked if he could paint her portrait. It's quite a large, you know, format portrait made with oil paint. So it's, you know, it was going to be a serious undertaking. So that's, you know, quite a respectful sort of gesture to to ask someone to paint that kind of image of them but yeah I think you know it may be just with the virtue of hindsight she may have romanticized their their initial opinions of one another yeah you quote Steiner saying that she says I alone at this time I was alone at this time in understanding Picasso perhaps because I was expressing the same thing in literature it's quite difficult to explain this isn't it but it's to do with kind of abstraction and representation what they were both trying to do is that right yeah and this is something that, you know, if you if you study Stein or, or read much of Stein's work, you know, you have to grapple with the fact that she thought she was writing a kind of literary cubism. Um, and that's maybe, you know, at least for me, I'm sure for other people, a kind of key to approaching Stein's work, which is heavily repetitive. But she said there's no such thing as repetition, only insistence. And you start to see these kind of rephrasings of the same words over and over as sort of like an an artist looking up at his subject and then down at the pad as he sketches it really quickly, looking up again and again to try to capture it. But yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of difficult, I think, in a museum show to really prove that argument from Stein's perspective. It's a lot easier to show Stein's influence on Picasso than the other way around. Mm, Lauren, mm. where was she at this point in her writing life? She's working on her novella Melantha, which is the story of a mixed race woman, which eventually was published um, in her 1909 collection, Three Lives. And then soon after that was embarked on this massive undertaking, The Making of Americans, which wouldn't be published until 1925. That's like the amount of work that went into this thing and how massive this project was. She wanted to write a kind of biography of of America or of all Americans, and she wanted to invent a new language to do it. So she's really, you know, she's moving from talking about doing like character sketches and three lives to, oh, importantly, I should mention, she starts writing um, Tender Buttons during this time, which I think is 1914 when it's Mm. published, but moving, I think, from portraits of people to still lives in words. So it's a real kind of 
shift in her attention to what she's trying to represent on the page. And you make the very good point as well that in an exhibition, you can see this happening. When the picture's on the walls, you can see the developments. You can sort of understand it more in terms of art. But it is difficult to understand I mean, as you say, in general, in terms of writing, but particularly in an exhibition like this, there's a lot of wall text. They managed to give an idea that she's kind of embarked on a similar project in her own medium. They do, but this, you know, they, they make a good effort. There's not that much text on the wall and some of it is kind of sparse. So I think there's like a quote about pain soup that I think I, I have in the article. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Pain soup. Suppose it is a question. Suppose it is butter. Real is. Real is only. Only excreate. Only excreate a no sense. Like when you're just kind of moving through an exhibition, I'm not sure you can really take that on board and really think about what she's doing there. It does give you a sense of tender buttons, but I'm concerned that the sense is more like, wow, isn't that weird? It seems more like the project of, of experimentation is more successful in Picasso's work than in Stein's work. Just from seeing the the show that I don't actually think that's true in real life. Mm, but it's just much easier to sort of, well, it's because it's you, you're looking at it on the wall so you can see yeah, it develop. Yeah, and people you? are moving through. There's a lot of, it's like a hugely packed exhibition when I went. Um, mm. So it's just hard to have the time to take with like very challenging writing in that kind of setup. Mm -hmm. But then I was struck by you saying later in the exhibition, Picasso kind of fades into the background, doesn't he? And Stein comes very much to the fore. And I think I hadn't realised, and your piece made me realise, her huge influence over all sorts of art forms, especially American practitioners of all sorts of art forms that you might not expect. Yeah, completely. And I have to say, I was really surprised at this point in the show because I hadn't read the description of it. I just saw that it was going to be a, a work, a show about Stein and Picasso and their kind of mutual influence. And I'm meant to be writing this biography of Stein. So I thought, eh, I should see that while I'm in Paris. So I went to see it. And then, you know, it's all cubism, cubism, cubism. And then you turn a corner and it's like four saints in three acts and John Cage and Yvonne Rayner. And it's and then, you know, you go a little further and it's all of these like minimalists and Andy Warhol. And I was like, what is going on? Mm. It was really hugely ambitious. I have to give the curators, you know, a little like chapeau because they pulled this show together and managed to convey like just the breadth of Stein's influence on the rest of the 20th century into the 21st century in America and beyond. I wasn't prepared for it, but it blew me away. Well, and as you say, so it's music because she writes a libretto for, it's a sort of opera, isn't it? With, with Virgil yeah, Thompson. Yeah, Four Saints in Three Acts. Yeah, and then um, John Cage is very influenced mm -hmm. by, her, by her approach. And then it's modern art, as you say, Andy Warhol and who was it? Jasper Johns. Mm -hmm. And... And theatre and dance, yeah, which and dance. I hadn't actually really, really understood that at all. But but they were they were very influenced by her, weren't they? They were. And like I study the avant-garde and the 20th century avant-garde in particular. It's it's my field. But I hadn't thought of all of those people as necessarily working from Stein's influence. Um, but the show kind of locates Stein as the common sort of denominator, the idea of repetition and insistence and like variations on a primary theme and just kind of stripping back what art could be to very simple gestures all of these things were were things that that these people took from Stein 
they have a quote on the wall from Judith Molina, who is the co-founder of the Living Theater, who said who said something like, everything in modern theater has been touched by Stein's reorganization of language. She freed the theater in every dimension and the seeds she planted here have continued to grow. So I thought that was a lovely way of thinking about Stein's influence, sorry. That is incredible, isn't it? Because it's not a sort of commonplace. It's not, it's not an idea that you come across all the time. But I, I wonder, it was very evocative when you were talking about her, her long walks across Paris to sit for Picasso. And evidently, it did have an influence on her, that whole exchange between them. Did it on him? Did it continue to have an influence on him, I wonder? It's really hard to say because he just disappears from view. It's like Stein Picasso up until, I don't know, I want to say the early 1920s. And then Stein goes to America and becomes a big star there. And we don't hear about Picasso anymore. Wow. And they just kind of, whatever friendship they had or whatever sort of working partnership they had just disappears into the ether, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they clearly went on knowing each other and and collaborating and everything. But um, yeah, the show, as far as the show is concerned, you know, Gertrude Stein takes center stage and Picasso kind of fades out. And so you're working on a on a biography of Gertrude Stein, did you say? I am, yeah. It's for Yale's Jewish Live series. So it's not, you know, like a big doorstopper or anything. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm writing about Stein as an American writer who had to move to France, you know, away from America to kind of reinvent English for herself. Mm. And did this shed any any new light for you or give you any new angles or or it was or was it pretty much um I mean it was it would have been ground that you knew already but I wonder yeah. if there were any new connections there not really I mean it was just really useful to to dwell on that relationship between Stein and Picasso and to think about the ways in which he would have helped shape what she was trying to do with language um I think it was just a kind of you know deepening of of stuff I was already thinking about you know it all. You've got it all in your head well, already. I have, I have the basic <laughs> scaffolding, but you know, yeah. not not the not the meat of it yet. So yeah, help with the meat. I was very struck by that detail that you close your piece with. But you say you just going out of the door of the exhibition, and you've absorbed basically a century's worth, as you say, of high modernism, which is enough to make anyone's head spin. <laughs> and then you see a photograph. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it really was like literally next to the door you're on your way out you're like oh, okay that was good and then you see this photograph by Felix Gonzalez Torres of um, Stein and Toklas's shared grave at Père Lachaise in Paris and it's of the just the, the foliage the flowers that are flourishing there and I just thought it was such a lovely way to end the show I mean the show doesn't have much to say about LSB Toklas she's barely there She's present in a couple of um, double portraits of of Gertrude and Alice. It's much more, you know, the show is obviously much more interested in in talking about the relationship between Stein and Picasso. But to end on this image of their grave together, I think just restores to Toklas her rightful place as Stein's co-creator. And you make the point that it was taken in 1992 mm-hmm. and it's an image of a homosexual partnership, you know, after death, as you say, persisting, past death and taken near the height of the AIDS crisis and it's it's a there's a sort of juxtaposition of feeling I suppose there yeah it's very affecting and you know it's taken on film 
we're used to seeing, you know, digital pictures that are like super enhanced. And I don't know, a lot of the show has work that's really blown up to quite a large scale. Um, but this is, it's just small on film, kind of faded colors. It's very simple, but really powerful. I love the last two words of your, uh, <laughs> of your piece. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read this just for our listeners. Uh, and you're talking about the photograph. You said it also implicitly restores to Toklas her right play, rightful place as Stein's co-creator, art wife, to her art monster. Now, <laughs> art monsters, of course, is the title. <laughs> that reminds me. Very good. I mean, good product placement, Lauren. <laughs> and we're hearing now about you're writing a, a biography of Stein. Yeah. Uh, which you very, very kind of, you know, you downplay and say it's not a doorstopper. Nonetheless, <laughs> just happened to have seen on social media. You've just shared an image of the cover of a book that's coming out before that biography, a novel um, that yeah. you've written called Scaffolding. And I mean, mm -hmm. I must say, you're extremely prolific. I feel rather <laughs> like I don't know what I'm doing with my time. Alex, I have to tell you, I started Scaffolding in 2007. And I well, it this year. that's <laughs> what have you been doing then? I take it all back. You're very, very lazy. Just, exactly. Just the exactly. four books. Is that all? <laughs> it took so long to finish that book, but I did it. I'm really, really happy. It's fine. But the novel, done. your debut novel, in other yeah. words. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I am now judging a book by its cover, but it's a very beautiful cover of a, a figure in a very vibrant yellow jacket, but also two swans. In plastic bags. In plastic bags. It's <laughs> intriguing. Yeah, completely. It's this American artist called Shannon Lucy Cartier. Uh, and I came across some of her work on Instagram during the pandemic and was just immediately struck. I think it was a pair of hands playing the piano with a goldfish bowl balancing on one of the wrists. And I'm a pianist and I don't know, it just really spoke to me. And so I went looking at her other work and saw that. And the, one of the opening images in my book is this young woman um, trying to remember the combination to her building you know the code in Paris you need to get into building mm, and she has yeah. bulging plastic bags dangling from the crooks of her elbows but not not swans in not the swans not okay swans. <laughs> so this is your protagonist it's set in Paris uh, she's one of them yeah it's set in Paris in the present day in 1972 oh okay wonderful that's terrific yeah. so so and that's out next year then yeah in June in the UK Okay, well, that's wonderful. So we we've got art monsters to learn about. Though Gertrude Stein wasn't one of your art monsters, was she? But she, was she will not. be, as it were. Yeah, I'm going to give her, you know, center stage. <laughs> she will be in the next one, and we've got your novel to look forward to next year. Well, you have to come back on and talk to us when the novel is published. I mean, if you've got time <laughs> between writing books and and you just slipped in there playing piano. I mean, I do honestly. I feel not very accomplished right now. It's all right, Alex. We're not here to be accomplished. We're just here to. Oh, no, to right. ask questions we're the, to, we're to the midwives people. to accomplishment you're absolutely right <laughs> um, so I mean I, I, I've got to say I don't think it's likely sadly that I will get to Paris to see this exhibition which does go on into well into the new year doesn't it but you are recommending it I think oh yeah fully it is very good I had my quibbles but it's it's really it's really something mm. to see mm -hmm. okay well so if, if you're in the neighborhood listeners Get down to the Musée du Luxembourg and go and find out about the invention of language and read Lauren's wonderful piece. Lauren, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you.
Still to come on the show, the contradictions at the heart of Willa Cather's pioneering novels. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. From the great modernists to a writer who, a new biography claims, celebrated above all the antique virtues. It's 150 years since the birth of Willa Cather, author of O Pioneers, My Antonia, and One of Ours, and enshrined in literary history as the voice of a generation of Midwestern settlers. Benjamin Taylor's Tracing Bright Medusas, the first life since the publication of her letters a decade ago, makes the case for Kaffer as an anti-modernist, committed to chronicling the world as it had been in her childhood. Maria Margaronis has reviewed the book in this week's TLS and joins us now to examine the arguments. Maria, welcome. Hello. Now, do I put it too strongly, or does Benjamin Taylor was Kaffer? and anti-modernist? Well, she definitely was a nostalgic person. She thought of her childhood in Nebraska as the well of her creativity. She does, in many of her novels, sort of rail against newfangled machinery for uh, doing things to the milk on a dairy farm and so on. And she hated consumerism. So she doesn't like it when people wear a lot of ostentatious jewelry and so on. Uh, but, and she did say that after 1922, the world fell apart. 
one might say the world fell apart after about 2022 as well. But I don't think she was really an anti-modernist as a writer, although she's generally thought of as one. When you read her, some of her descriptions and the way she kind of sinks into the landscape and the people and the kind of feeling between the people and the landscape sometimes reminds me of someone like Virginia Woolf. And she also had this way of putting things together in her books, almost like patchwork. Uh, in one of her novels, there's a, a woman who makes a lot of patchwork quilts and, and she used to write in a sewing room when she was young. And so this, this thing idea has kind of crept into her mind in some way. But in um, Oh Pioneers, which is her second novel, and one of the ones she's most that is most read now, she has this, she wrote a separate story about a pair of doomed lovers, Emile and Marie in Nebraska. And she wrote the other story about this character, Alexandra, who's a very powerful woman farmer, et cetera, et cetera. And then she suddenly realized she could put them together. So she slotted one into the other, like you would if you were quilting and put the sort of contrasting colors next to, next to each other. And it makes a fantastic novel. So I think that's quite a modernist thing to do. And I think that her writing itself is quite modernist, but she was also, you know, old fashioned plots, uh, no messing around with her sentences. They're nice, sturdy, plain American sentences. So I think there's a bit of both. That's interesting. It's always a, a sort of more complex picture than if it first appears, isn't it? That she was in some ways maybe socially conservative and, and yet artistically not so much. She definitely was socially conservative. She didn't like Roosevelt. She didn't like the New Deal. But again, you know, and, and in her early journalism, which actually Benjamin Taylor quotes at some length, she, she wanted it all buried forever, as many of us do. But uh, he does quote from it. And she she railed against Oscar Wilde, you know, thought his uh, he was absolutely shocking for being homosexual, even though she herself spent her life with women. And she says, oh, you know, there are very few great women writers, except for the exceptional, the two great Georges, George Sand and uh, George Eliot. And Jane Austen's OK, but usually women are too sentimental. So, yeah, she was no radical in any way. Mm. And she was definitely... As you say that, she was definitely averse to publicity, wasn't she? I, I mentioned there that her letters have only recently been published, and that was because she just didn't want anything to come out at all, did she? She absolutely forbade any quotation from her letters in print. She said, no plays, no dramas, no Hollywood films of my novels. Uh, both of those bans have been lifted, but the letters were published in 2013. So this is the first biography to come out since the letters were published. And, you know, since um, mm. writers are allowed to quote from them. And the novel that you draw on most, I think, in your piece, I mean, you mentioned a lot of her work, but is My Antonia. And that was inspired by her own family journey, wasn't it, from Virginia to Nebraska when she was a child? Yes. Um, it's supposed to be pronounced. It's very difficult to say, but it's My Antonia. Oh, the oh. accent is on the A, is on the Antonia. first day, Antonia. Antonia is a bohemian. Uh, that is not not a not a you know free thinking cultural person, but someone from Bohemia. Uh, and her family, the Shimurdas, have arrived in Nebraska at the same time as uh, Willa's family moved from Virginia to Nebraska when she was nine. She was part of. She had lots of siblings, and they moved to the prairie. And she puts her own experience into the voice of her narrator, who is a boy, Jim Burden. And it's such an evocative 
incredibly beautiful description of the place. And it starts out very much like a child's fairy tale. She talks about the trees being gold and silver like in a fairy tale. There's possibly my favorite sentence of all the sentences of hers I've read is she talks about the prairie being as if the shaggy grass were a sort of loose hide and underneath it herds of wild buffalo were galloping, galloping. And she describes it as an unformed land. It's just covered with this long red grass. And as the novel goes on, the land is gradually farmed, dug, divided up. And there's this very moving moment that Jim and Antonia become friends and she's quite a wild girl. And so they have all kinds of adventures together as children, but then everything turns very dark because uh, her father kills himself in the barn, shoots himself in the mouth in the barn with his own rifle, which again is based on something that happened to a neighbor of Willa Cather's um, in reality. And so the family, who are very traditional, want to bury him under the corner of their land, under where the fences meet, because they know that that's eventually going to be a crossroads. And the way that suicides were traditionally buried was under a crossroads. It was a superstitious thing that would prevent them from haunting the world. But then when the roads actually come and are built, of course, the authorities don't build the road over the grave, but go round it. You know, one road goes a bit to the east and the other one goes a bit to the south. So you see through this novel, the gradual taming of Nebraska by the settlers. But of course, the, the indigenous people are almost completely invisible. You hear a mention of them, an echo of them in that line about the buffalo. And there's another place where there's a kind of grass ring, which was used by them. But apart from that, they've just gone. But there are lots of Swedes, Norwegians, Germans, uh, some French people, all arriving in Nebraska to farm and trying to make it in this really, really tough landscape. Mm -hmm. It sounds wonderful. I have been very quiet up until now because I have a terrible confession, which is that I've never read any Willa Cather and I didn't have time to read it before we talked today, but I clearly have to. And Oh Pioneers is wonderful. I mean, I, I've read those two years and years and years ago. And then um, when George asked me to do this piece, I thought, well, I'd better read lots more. So I've actually, I discovered that some of her later novels, which are not so much read now, are really wonderful. I think possibly, apart from my Antonia, my favourite is The Professor's House. Mm. Has, again, this is really all, of, the main characters here are men, but the main character, the professor himself. Professor, he has a very extraordinary name, Professor Godfrey St. Peter. <laughs> That's very proper. Yeah, I'm not sure what she's what she was doing there but you know god and saint peter in the same name seems you know but he has two grown-up daughters and various family problems and he's feeling very stale and very kind of dried up and uh they all go away and leave him alone and he goes back to the diary of a student he had a young man called tom outland another name with resonances so tom had worked as a cowpunch in the Southwest, which Willa Cather also loved and wrote about, and discovers the interior of the Blue Mesa, which is now a sort of tourist destination. And inside this mesa, which is very difficult to get into, Tom uh, follows the cattle that swim across the river. He's been warned with his, his cow-punching partner not to let them go across the river, but of course some of them inevitably do, and they find a way into the interior of the mesa 
And then they discover in there the cliff dwellings, which were old indigenous people's cliff dwellings, which you had to sort of climb up to. They were built into the side of the cliffs. I don't know if you've, if you've been to the Southwest, you know, like the Grand Canyon, you can imagine what that's like inside. So it's all very red and orange and yellow rock and incredibly steep sides. And they discover a town and they spend weeks kind of excavating it and taking out all the pots, a beautiful pottery, and they find a, a woman, dead woman in there in, in, whose face is in some kind of agony. And they find a place in the back where uh, bodies were kept before burial and all kinds of artifacts like this and are completely bewitched by this place. And then Tom takes some of these artifacts to the Smithsonian in Washington because he thinks they're going to be absolutely uh, you know, thrilled by this discovery and they're going to want to take the pots and put them in the museum. And, and there's a very, very, uh, it, it, she rarely writes comedy, but there's a very brilliant bit of satire about Tom endlessly waiting to see people at the Smithsonian and all they ever want to do is go out to lunch and the better a lunch you take them to, you know, the more likely they are to listen, but they're not interested in the end. And he goes back and his partner sold half the pots and he's terribly disappointed, but then he goes and, and sort of camps on top of the Mesa and he has these epiphanies about, he finds this extraordinary piece. And this is an amazing piece of writing and it's very different from the rest of the book, but then we come back to the old professor and somehow, and he's kind of disillusioned, depressed, he actually, wants to let the old coal stove in his sewing room study, just like Willa Cather's old sewing room study, uh, asphyxiate him. But he, through, he finds a similar sort of acceptance and peace through coming back to this experience. And this novel seems to me to be so much about Willa Cather's own writing life. You know, the mm -hmm. kind of entering into the landscape. She was fascinated by not just fascinated, I think she deeply believed that people are shaped by the landscape where they live as well as shaping it the way the pioneers did and that that kind of mutual shaping is fundamental. I mean, it sounds absolutely wonderful. And and the thing that when you're talking about it and saying uh, there's, there's a writer that it keeps reminding me of, and you can both tell me whether this is bonkers or not, but in terms of the, the kind of nostalgia and the deep feeling for the land and the people's connection to it, it sounds a bit like Thomas Hardy. Is that mad? No, it's not mad at all. And it's, she's less, I hate to call Thomas Hardy sentimental, but he was. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. She's less like that because you see all the time, I mean, like the dead woman in the Mesa village, and she doesn't hide how hard life was. So we have Mr. Shimoda's suicide. We have, you know, other people going broke. We have people dying in horrible accidents. It's not a wonderful life. And also there's a kind of, the way people are in small towns, you know, in small villages where there's a lot of gossip and a lot of hate. And she hated mm. small towns. I mean, people in um, my Antonia, both Jim and Antonia move to a town which she calls in the novel Black Hawk, but which is based on Red Cloud, a town in Nebraska that her family moved to. And they find some lovely cultured bohemian with a small b people uh, and have a lovely time. But that kind of pettiness of small town life is something she really didn't like. But she has the same regret about mm. reality as Thomas Hardy does. And the same, I think, 
kind of inner pressure to chronicle the world that she knew and to sort of keep it, to save it in prose. I don't think that's too much of a reach at all, Lucy, even though I think they are evidently very different writers. But there is also that tension, isn't there? And you make this point in your piece, Maria, of the people who do stay, and Antonia and Jim are perfect examples of this, and the people who go away, and how if you go away, it's incredibly hard to return, not necessarily literally, but emotionally. Yes, it's that uh, great American title, You Can't Go Home Again. And I think this was very much a dramatization of Willa Cather's own feeling. I mean, she was, you know, cosmopolitan, independent, cultured. She'd go to Europe. She loved traveling. She loved theater, opera, etc. And yet she had this part of her that was the little girl on the prairie. Mm. And she dramatizes this often in a very gendered way. So it's the men who have this dreadful restlessness. Um, like a Claude, who's the hero of her war novel, one of ours, uh, which won her her one and only Pulitzer Prize in 1923, but which was really absolutely uh, pilloried by several critics, partly because by then, men like um, John Dos Passos and E.E. Cummings were coming back from the First World War and writing about it from real experience. And she does, tremendously romanticized the American soldier who's gone to France. And it's like, you know, you sometimes, sometimes sounds as if the war was all about going into cheese shops and tasting delicious things or being in a beautiful monastery and looking out at the waving poplar trees or whatever. Of course, he does come to inevitably be in battle and I won't give any spoilers, but that restlessness was hers and that ambivalence about the restlessness was hers too. It's also very interesting in the way that you're describing it, that issue of of understanding a connection to the land, you know, in its topography and in its features, but that there is this absence of the Indigenous people, of the people who the incomers have displaced, because she obviously understood that there were those confrontations, there were those moments when settlers would come face to face with, as you said, the artefacts in the Mesa. But yeah. that wasn't something she really wanted to explore. No, except in Death Comes, well, I have to say, I haven't read all her novels, so there may be some elsewhere, but in Death Comes for the Archbishop, which is set in the Southwest, the Catholic missionaries interact at length with the Pueblo Indians there. and. Uh, she does talk about them, and, and often in a very respectful way, in fact. It's often very ambivalent, but there, there's, again, there's another extraordinary scene where the bishop is traveling with a guide who is from, who's an indigenous person, and they get caught in a huge storm, and the guide takes him into this cave where they, the, his people enact, it's a secret place where his people enact a ritual, and it's, that's done with great respect and kind of awe. So there, yes, she did write about the indigenous people of the country, but not in Nebraska. And I'm not sure why. I mean, I think by the time she remembers it, there were not many people left there. But even so, it's a gap, not a surprising one for the early 20th century, but a gap nonetheless. Mm, mm. I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously there's so many writers and cultural figures, creators who have shaped 
our picture of the Midwest, but she must be one of the most influential, mustn't she? I think so. You know, her and, and, and Laura Ingalls Wilder, who is, you know, she's nothing like, but I, when I was reading the sort of prairie parts of her novels, I couldn't help thinking about Little House on the Prairie, mm. you know, which many mm. of us read as a child. There is, I mean, that's obviously far, far, far more romanticised, but I think she is, and I think, I don't, I've never read anything else that brings the landscape to life as she does, and the kind of, as we've said, the connection with the land. And just the details, the domestic details, that's the other thing, is, you know, how you eat, how, what you cook, the men all sitting around the table, the women sort of serving the food. In um, one of ours, there's a, a character called Mahaley who has come from the South, from a poor family, and has been sort of taken in by uh, Claude's family, who helps his mother in the house, and is sort of part of the family and sort of not. And She's a quilter, by the way, so there's this more of this sewing metaphor going through, and she's kind of sort of the earth person, and there's this lovely moment where um, Claude marries the wrong woman. He marries a, a woman called Enid, who basically then won't have sex with him at all, even though she has allowed him to watch her embroidering her wedding underclothes. That's as far as it goes in those days. It's not, not very far, is it? No, that's not very no. far. No. <laughs> not far enough. <laughs> no. So... I have to say, one of the other things I somewhat disagree with Benjamin Taylor about, although um, Hermione Lee, whose biography of Willa Cather is still absolutely the best, I think it's a wonderful book, that she, that Willa Cather saw sex as a road to disaster. And I'm not sure that that's true. I think it's somewhat there in her writing, but there's a lot of eroticism as well of a less direct sort but I've digressed. So um, Mahaley at this wedding uh, thinks to herself, mm, it's funny how just a few words can make the thing that is absolutely all wrong, all right. Mm. And, and so we do get the sense that you're not completely convinced by this biography, Maria, is that right? I'm not. And I tried to be uh, fair to it in my review because I think it's good to read something like this about a writer, something like this who reads a writer who you love in a different way. It's helpful. It opens up your reading. Uh, but I do feel the biography is written with a bit of an agenda, uh, which is to give us the conservative anti-modernist Willa Cather. And there has been over the last few decades, a kind of there have been Willa Cather wars, if you like, uh, between feminist literary critics who want to read uh, the novels much more through her gender nonconformity and others who, more conservative critics, who want to read her as the great bard of Nebraska and a kind of patriotic American. And I think both things are there, really. I just think she was a very complicated person. I think quite a prickly person. I mean, even Hermione Lee says in her biography that, you know, you write a sentence and you think, well, Willa Cather wouldn't have liked this. I think she was not an easy woman. But that's partly what makes the books so interesting to read, because there's so much going on in them. Mm. You very definitely made us think that we all need to go and read our Willa Cather again. Well, I or, do. Or for the Obviously. first time. I know, even. it's dreadful. I do realise it's dreadful. Well, as I always say, we can't all read everything, Lucy. <laughs> this was such a treat to have this assignment because 
I mean, first of all, George had asked me to do a rereading, one of the rereadings of TLS runs. So I thought, oh, I've got to read all of Willa Cather, you know. Uh, but then it turned out there was this biography out, so uh, Benjamin Taylor's biography. So we turned it into that. But by then I'd embarked on reading lots of Willa Cather and also listening to some of it on audiobooks, I have to say, because some of the books are very long and there are things one has to do with one's hands. So quilting, quilting, <laughs> I hope. Yes, I do. I'm afraid I do, yes. No, don't be afraid. That sounds wonderful. It was just an absolute treat to dive in like that and just live inside that world for a few Actually, weeks. Actually, I, I too have, I thought I would refresh myself uh, because it's a very long time since I read my Antonia, uh, which I still can't pronounce. But I also listened to, to some of it on audio and I was taken back exactly as you said. It's very immersive mm-hmm. in, in that, you know, that those very evocative portraits of the landscape and as you say of the the daily life and I certainly didn't didn't regret that re-immersion into it um thank you so much for talking to us about it now we understand that you we're having much more chat on our podcasts aren't we as the year closes Lucy because it's Christmas now and we're all in a kind of rather social mode and you have a very exciting day well, I do. It's a day when I am unbelievably proud of my two younger children, which is just just thrilling. My daughter Zoe, Zoe Guttenplan, has who's, who's written for the TLS, very for some very has, nice pieces for TLS. Can I say? Has she has just published today in Jacobin an absolutely brilliant review of Emily Wilson's translation of the Iliad. It is. Erudite, elegant, entertaining. She starts with John Keats and then she takes us eventually to Drake, uh, not Sir Francis, but the rapper Drake, to explain the real one. Yeah. Yeah, to explain (laughs) dactylic hexameters, you know, it's just so that immensely proud. I feel like having produced a a writer like Zoe, I I shall not have lived in vain, though I'm solely responsible. And then my youngest son, uh, Theo Guttenplan, uh, plays with the band Ugly, which is a great indie rock band. Uh, (laughs) EP just out, coming out in January, uh, and they're headlining at the 100 Club tonight. This is what caught my attention because not everybody says this when we say, please, could you could you come and talk to us on the podcast? And you you had to have a specific time because what were you doing earlier on? I was being roadie for Theo. He keeps his good drum kit here because he lives in a very small flat and I have a car. So he came over, we loaded the drums into the back of the car and drove them down to the 100 Club. And there he was with his Wonderful. hairdo and his big flared trousers <laughs> How can this be my son? So so tonight I'm going to be dancing to my son's drumming at the 100 Club with my daughter, who's just published this beautiful piece of writing, and I couldn't be happier. Terrific. We don't usually have people saying, can I do it after this amount of time? Because I'm being a drum roadie. Because <laughs> I'm a roadie. That's, uh, no, you see, that sounds but, wonderful. Maria. But we celebrate all the talents yes, uh, on this do. podcast. Yes, and of course we are. I'm incredibly impressed. <laughs> we are very impressed. Um, Maria, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Willa Cather. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, real pleasure. have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lauren Elkin and Maria Margaronis. 
And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.